Kara. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Good, how are you? Uh, I leave for Finland tomorrow morning, so I'm a little bit stressed out getting everything together. That's not like you. I know, right? It's not like I save things for the last minute or rely on companies to send me the right equipment the first time around. <laughs> oh, the hard life we have is academics traveling the world to do amazing research. It's true. It's true. However, things did literally come together the last minute. The wrong heart rate monitors were sent to me. I had a grad student have to like overnight ship heart rate monitors to me as well. And then doubly labeled water samples that had to get out of North Carolina, like right at the tail end of Florence coming through. So like a lot of crazy stuff kind of happened right before I needed to leave for this trip. It's funny, um, just before we got on, we were talking about all the stuff that never ends up in papers, which is, is kind of what we end up talking about here on the Sausage of Science, right? I imagine you're wondering who all these people are that you're looking at. Mostly, I have a wonderful view of your hip and wrist. That's right. Well, <laughs> so let me move out of the way. Here are some people. Of course, the people in the audience only hear the audio, and I have no idea what we're talking about, so let me fill everyone in. We're doing an experiment today. This is our first ever podcast from my class, right? So some of you people out there in podcast land have maybe live-tweeted events. Sometimes I have actually live-tweeted from my class, and this is the first time I've ever podcasted from my class. It's not live. It will be edited. But this is Principles of Biological Anthropology and the Evolutionary Studies Club. So we have grad students and undergrads here at the University of Alabama in honor of Dr. Katie Hine, who is here to do an allele lecture. And she's, get, she's running the gauntlet. It's like she's on a job interview. She's got so many talks today. <laughs> Part of which is the obligatory lunch with grad students with a podcast interview. She's not really on a job interview. We just all want to talk to her. So she's got a very full schedule. So what I have done is I have had all the students send in some questions. and I'm going to have them ask Katie directly. But for those in, Dr. Katie Hind is an associate professor at Arizona State University. Her expertise is on human milk. She'll be giving a talk tonight called Mother's Milk, Something Something Evolution. Mm -hmm. What is it actually called? Older than dinosaurs, how a hundred-year-old adaptation underlies the success of humans. Yes, all those words, and I can't wait. And we're going to record it with her permission, edit it, and that will be part B to this podcast, so we get to share that with everyone out there with her permission. She's also one of the founders and co-hosts of March Mammal Madness on Twitter, and one of the co-authors on the Safe Study came out in 2013 and thereafter on sexual harassment in field sites and field research experiences. So we're really, really excited to have her here and have lots of words, but I'm going to turn the mic back to her and, and say hello. It's going to be weird today. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction and having me on the Sausage of Science and in the classroom for the first ever podcast from class. And I'm excited for your questions and hope I can do an adequate job answering them. So thank you. Just so we can let the students warm up and see how we do things, remembering to go near the mic. Carrot, do you have any, any words to add? Uh, Katie, you have such a wonderful story about how you came not only to anthropology, but into academia itself. And I was wondering if maybe you could 
give us the long and short of your origin story in this field. The long and the short. All right, the long and the short. So, the options. so I spent my childhood on a farm in rural Ohio, spent a lot of time in Gahanna, Ohio, following around my one nice hen when she'd have her chicks because the mean hen would beak attack me. And I've always been really interested in nature and animals. When I was in, right before fourth grade, my parents moved us out to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so I spent the rest of my growing up in urban and then rural Seattle area and in, the, in Washington State. My dad was a folk musician who played music on the street, and that's about as lucrative as you would imagine. So I knew my parents weren't gonna be able to help pay for me to go to college. My parents didn't go to college, and Washington State in the 90s had a program called Running Start where the state would pay to send you to community college if you could test in as a junior and or senior in high school. And so I was able to go to community college for the first two years and get the state to pay for it so I wouldn't accumulate debt. And I was able to transfer to the University of Washington and secure a whole bunch of fellowships and scholarships and Pell Grants so that I was able to finish up my degree in two years again without accumulating any debt, which I, I didn't realize what an instrumental blessing that was going to be. And at the University of Washington, I started to study primates and we undergrads in the 90s, sorry, this is a long answer, but this in the 90s, we could go and check out baby monkeys from the infant primate research lab and the carry check out. I mean, we had to get some training, but we'd go in and, and we'd carry them in an igloo cooler with holes punched in the top of it across, across the hospital complex. It was undergrads. And we'd take the baby monkey over to the main primate center and we could run the x-ray and, and take x-rays of baby monkeys to look at their skeletal development across the first two years of life. And yeah, I mean, like, there's no way that anybody would be allowed to do this now. <laughs> um, but that's when I fell in love with infant development and what shapes infant development. And I did an honors thesis there under Professor Laura Newell Morris. And when she taught you, she started class with, hello, my name is Professor Laura Newell Morris, and you can address me as either Dr. Newell Morris or Professor Newell Morris. End of list. <laughs> and, and like, I'm pretty informal and I was pretty surprised about that. But, you know, she was uh, mature when I was an undergrad. And I realized that when she got her PhD, hardly any women were getting their PhD. And her earned title meant a lot. And so she, she required that respect and I, I respect her for that. Uh, so I fell in love with monkeys and biological anthropology. And when I got done, because I had started college when I was 15, I was 19 when I got done with my BA. And my dad's like, okay, so you're going to apply to grad school now. And I was like, I'm not. <laughs> I don't want to go to grad school before I can go to happy hour. Like <laughs> everybody else gets done with, with classes and they go to hang out at the bar. And I'm like, getting on my bike, like, okay, you guys, see you later. Bring, bring. <laughs> and, and it was like, I don't, I don't want to do that. So I took, I took several years off and I worked in research and I learned how to do all sorts of research procedures and um, how to engage with staff and technicians and professors. And, and I went and went to field school in Indonesia, which was a life-changing experience. And when I went and, and worked in Indonesia that summer, I was like, yep, time for grad school. I came back applied to grad school. I went to UCLA to do um, my PhD. I did the monkey work for my PhD at UC Davis at the California National Primate Research Center. I did the lab work at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., which was amazing. I finished my PhD. I continued to postdoc at UC Davis at the National Primate Research Center. 
and all along the way I did all sorts of things that were in harmony with my mentor's advice mm -hmm. and at times departed from my mentor's advice and a lot of stars aligned so that I was able to, to navigate a pretty successful trajectory through training and began as a professor in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University and then uh, transitioned when Arizona State University launched their new Center for Evolution and Medicine. I realized that that's exactly where I wanted to be because it's a field, it's a department, it's a, it's a center that explicitly says we need to bring the social sciences and the life sciences together to solve the challenges that are facing humans today, human health today. Because, you know, life scientists can come up with vaccines, but social scientists tell us how we get people to start using them. Life scientists can decode what's in mother's breast milk, but social sciences are the ones who inform policymakers and clinicians how you influence parent feeding, you know, how parents feed their babies. So that's the long, not remotely short, of my career trajectory. So Kara, it's, it's hilarious. I just went and picked Katie up from her last talk, and I'm going to transition from her very impressive story to... What, what she does when she's not academic. And she was doing some sort of butt dance to explain a book. And, you know, we always ask about what someone's reading. So uh, I want to hear more about this book that required a demonstration. What, what have you been yeah. reading lately? Uh, what was that about? No, this is, oh man, this book. So it's called Blood and Guts, The History of Surgery. It's a really good book and it talks about some of the key advances in human healthcare delivery that afforded the ability to do surgeries the way that we do now. How have we been able to improve people's health? And I was telling um, my favorite story from the, this is so dark. This is such, this is, I'm, I'm a, such a horrible person that I can't stop laughing when I tell this story because I mean, these are real people in their real lives and, I, and I'm very sad about that. But in my head, it's like the most incredible movie scene in my head and it is about a surgery that had a 300% mortality rate. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Three people died because of the surgery. And so, you know, yeah. Okay, so one of your students is also well-read. So there was this surgeon in 1800s London, and when people would get a compound fracture and their bone would come sticking out of their skin, you had to amputate because the, the risk of infection, they, they didn't know how to deal with it. And so they, they didn't know about infection. They didn't know how about preventing infection. And so when people would get a compound fracture, they'd get an amputation, and one out of four people would die. And this doctor was super famous. I'm sorry, I forget his name, but he was super famous because he got the death rate down to one in five. So he was really important. And he did that because he got the surgery to be about a minute long. Can't, I can't tell the story without saying, I'm sorry that this is on a podcast and nobody else can see what I'm doing. But what he would do is he would have, he'd be in the bottom of the gallery, like those, those London surgery suites that he had those seats above it so people could look down and watch at what was happening and he'd have his surgical assistants. And what he'd do is he'd quickly slice around all of the femur. The assistant would grab all the musculature and pull it up so that the, the femur was exposed. He'd take his hatchet, chop through the femur. The assistant would release the tissue. The swollen tissue would close off the bleeding arteries and they'd stitch it up. And like, they could get this done in like a minute five. Wow. And so, but one day it went horribly awry. So he, he does the incision around, the assistant comes, grabs all the musculature, pulls it up, loses his grip, and reaches down to re-grab 
just as the chopper comes down and it chops off all his fingers and he's holding up his fingers and blood is gushing out and somebody in the gallery is watching this and they're like oh my god and they have a heart attack and they have a cardiac arrest and the, the, the guy who had his fingers cut off he gets an infection and he died and the person who had the compound fracture who got the amputation in the first place he also got an infection and he died so the the death rate from the surgery was 300 <laughs> percent it's like, but don't you see it like a movie in your head? You saw it a movie in real life. <laughs> so, so that that was a conversation I was having at my previous meeting when when Chris rocked in and heard us like horribly I, I, exclaiming about that. No. I, I heard her and I just kind of peeked around the corner and she's standing up just like just behind doing all of that and I stood there for five minutes because the person she was talking to just thought I was some random person going by and- And naturally you would stop to hear this story because who wouldn't? Would <laughs> on that note- um, <laughs> Maybe we should turn it over to the students yeah, on that there's, note. There's no good transition. Um, hello, I'm Serafina. My question was, if a mother has a postpartum depression, are there any changes to the milk? Mm. All right, so uh, that's a great question. And it depends on what her treatment is. So some of the kinds of treatment for postpartum depression are thought to impact the mammary glands ability to, to make milk. And so some people are, are actively researching that right now. So I don't, I don't have an answer. Your question is great. Leading scientists right now are working on answering it. There's other folks that are working on trying to understand the source of postpartum depression. So postpartum depression is a multifactorial condition that may be influenced by hormonal fluctuations due to the transition from pregnancy to postnatal period. But some people are really interested in trying to understand that difficulties with breastfeeding or mother-infant bonding, if there's, if, if there's difficulties in that transition, people speculate that that might lead to some manifestations of postpartum depression, in which case the causal arrows get really, really tricky to understand. Is it the postpartum depression that's affecting the milk or is it aspects of the mother-infant nursing dynamic, which we know affects milk, also affecting the incidence of postpartum depression? So it's a great question, and I would, I would say stay tuned. I think we're going to see a wave of publications coming out quite soon that directly address this. So I just want to give a little context for our audience there. One of the articles that Katie sent around for our discussion is uh, a, an argument that frames the contemporary research on human milk with regard to the human microbiome. And it's an amazing article, and I'm sitting here trying to pull it up on my phone so I can read the title. And fortunately, Liv has it right here. It is called Milk Bioactives May Manipulate Microbes to Mediate Parent-Offspring Conflict. And Katie is a co-author with Carrie Allen Blevins and David Sela. Stella. And it is in Evolutionary Medicine and Public Health. So we will post a link to that. It's a 2015 article. We'll post a link to that in the program notes. So that's where these questions are coming from. I'd like to highlight this article was really fun to write with Carrie and Dave because it's a hypothesis anchored paper. It's not an empirical paper. So it's basically bringing together data from psychology and, and anthropology, immunology, psychoneuroimmunology, microbiology, of course, biochemistry, all these different fields that are working on different pieces to this puzzle and starting to put it together in a way that generates a lot of first principles predictions out of parent-offspring conflict theory, out of developmental origins of health and disease, and really bringing together a lot of threads 
that folks have been working on independently to basically say, we know hardly anything about this. No one lab can tackle it alone. Let's, let's get more people pursuing these questions. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add that um, back in January, I think of last year, I was at Mississippi State, and I'm a terrible human because I can't remember the researcher's name there, but is doing microbiome research as well. And the profound nature of this research is, is reflected in this paper, which is that the microbiome may be influencing our behavior in a way that we can barely conceive of. This is truly science fiction type of stuff, right? Where we have uh, organisms living on our body that are controlling our mind in some ways and are, are at least influencing the things that we are interested in. So with that in mind, now I'm going to ask for volunteers. So who are you? My name is Bailey and my question's based on the non-human primate models of mental health. This is from Ancestral Childhoods. Oh, okay. Yeah, so okay. this is out of a workshop at Notre Dame. So my question was, did the infant peer-reared primates in your study display negative behaviors towards the observer? So this article, Non-Human Primate Models of Mental Health, I wrote with uh, my good friend and colleague, Amanda Detmer. And I just have to say, she and I were undergrads together at the mm. University of Washington oh, cool. at the Infant Primate Research Lab. And so I, I was a nursery tech and she was a temperament tech. And we both headed off to grad school and got our PhDs and postdocs and, and have, you know, continue to stay friends and work on building collaborations. So I, I really love this review article. So this is um, a review that we wrote before we did some empirical work later on that we've published since then. In labs in which they do these kinds of infant nursery primate research labs, the infants end up having a lot of interaction with uh, the research technicians that work there. So they get weighed every day to make sure that their health is stable. They get health checks, they get fed, and then their, uh, the food gets collected to make sure that their appetite is good. And so they end up having pretty routine interactions with a number of, of research techs. They get quite habituated to it. And so um, when I was a 19-year-old working in a lab, they didn't aggress toward me when I went about doing my daily job. But I have two funny stories about that. One is that when I worked in the lab, I would wear a green bandana every day and I'd go and I'd, you know, feed the animals and uh, check their health status. They knew the routine. They would do everything fine. And one day my bandana was in the laundry and I went in and like the monkeys were just not cooperating with me. Right. So like, they weren't like being aggressive or anything. They just were like, they were not into me at all. And I realized that I was only me to them when I was wearing my green bandana, that they had become habituated to that person and they didn't know this is stranger danger. You are a weirdo and we don't know you. Who are you with your brown hair? And that's when I kind of started thinking about like how they see the world. Very similarly, if I walked in and one of them was wearing a baseball hat, I'd be like, what? <laughs> I, that's atypical. <laughs> so, and, and then we also, we also had monkeys that were in these kind of group housing situations and they were at the end of a hallway and they'd they'd open this door so they weren't in an open room but like they could see down the hallway and I remember one time I walked down after I had changed out my clothes and so I wasn't in their room I was in the in the hallway and this is you could this was your personal protective equipment was standing four feet away from the cage at the time it's very different nowadays and I had on uh, sandals and so I wiggled my toes at them and they all stopped and they all just stared at my feet and I realized that they had always seen people wearing closed-toed shoes. So as far as they were concerned, 
humans have hooves. And <laughs> all of a sudden I showed up with these like these toes that I was like, I was like, you know, twinkling at them. And they were just like, they were riveted. They were like, what are those things? What is going on? And, and so it really helped me learn to, to work harder at looking at things from the perspective of other animals and what their routine is, what they're habituated to, and what seems to be a divergence from that. Thank you for that lovely answer. That, that makes it sound like I, I zoned out and I wasn't paying attention, but I was actually <laughs> visualizing her, her toes and a bunch of <laughs> monkeys staring at them. <laughs> Who would like to ask a question now? Okay, I'm Wade, and this is in reference to the breastfeeding article. So it talks about how it affects the microbiome of the children who are being breastfed. Have there been any studies to see if it affects a person's microbiome past breastfeeding into adulthood? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's complicated answers. So this is, it was only in like the mid early 2000s that people started getting really interested and how these complex glycans, these oligosaccharides within milk, these complex sugars, were feeding the microbes. Or they don't always feed, sometimes they trick. Glycans have these complex effects on the microbes. It's mother's milk basically doing ecological engineering of the baby's gut. And as of right now, like there are studies that show whether or not certain glycans are present are important for the microbial colonization. There's an experimental study in baby monkeys suggesting that these lead to persistent effects even after weaning. Um, a lot of the studies are a bit tricky because you've got minimally about three moving pieces here, big moving pieces. So you've got what glycans are present in the milk because they do different things. We don't know what all they do. And what microbes are present in the baby, right? So you could have certain glycans present, but if there aren't the right microbes to interact with them, then other microbes are gonna fill in that ecological space. And then one of the other questions is, there's a lot of work on how like maternal genotype, right? So if a mom's, you know, a secretor and she's uh, got the FUT2 genotype so that she's fucosylating her oligosaccharides, she's adding a fucose group to this complex sugar, that that's associated with certain glycans in the milk and then the kind of microbes that eat them. But what's been studied less is how the infant's secretor status and the infant's genotype is influencing the interaction. So are there going to be effects if mom and baby are genetically concordant versus discordant? What microbes are present in their environment, which is environmentally anchored and, and nutritionally influenced, and what is present in the milk and how it changes across time? So I would say right now that there isn't great clarity on these dynamics. I'm going to the milk meeting next week, so I expect to get a lot of updates on this field. So my answer would probably be much more sophisticated in two weeks from now. What we see is after about two years of age, there seems to be a really strong transition to an adult type microbiome. As you go through eating what adults are eating, the microbes that thrive in that ecology are going are gonna to increase. How much of the infant microbiome persists through that weaning transition and how the infant microbiome influences that is much less well studied. In part because we're talking about two or three years of just data collection before you even get to data analysis. And as we know from grant cycles, they are really infatuated with a three-year cycle. So part of this is a lot of the work that's happening is happening in captive rodents. 
some stuff in captive monkeys, some stuff in captive pigs. And we're still waiting to understand exactly how this translates to humans. Good question. Liv, yes. microbiome. This yes. sounds like your jam. It is my jam. You must have a question. I do. So um, while I was reading in on it, and I noticed that mother's milk will be dependent, will be sex dependent. And I am a fraternal twin. Mm -hmm. I have a boy twin brother. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it got me thinking, you know, if the milk is sex dependent, what happens when you're breastfeeding at the same time to two different sex children? In terms of everybody that's working on glycans right now, we've talked about this, I mean, all the people I know that are working on glycans right now, and we've all analyzed our data, and there's no evidence that the oligosaccharide profile that a mom produces is differentiated between sons and daughters. So whereas we find evidence for it in uh, nutritional content in milk and hormonal content in milk sometimes, we're not seeing it show up in the glycans. And we're not exactly sure why. It might be that this is something that's less plastic in response to infant characteristics and that it's really anchored to maternal characteristics. Uh, that's unclear. There's been some exciting papers looking at, the, there's this really neat paper that came out last year in humans um, in a big NIH study where they had, um, they didn't look at milk directly, but they looked at, it was, oh, this is such a clever study. And what they did is they looked at twins that were concordant for infant sex or discordant for infant sex. So boy, boy, girl, boy, and uh, girl, girl. And then they looked at if they were breastfed or formula fed. If they were formula fed, the growth trajectory of sex discordant and sex concordant twins was identical. Didn't matter. No effect. If they were breastfed, the total height attainment at adulthood of sex concordant twins was um, one to two inches higher than if they were sex discordant. Yes. <laughs> that is the best evidence in humans that demonstrates a lifelong signature of sex-specific milk synthesis. Now, what were the features of the milk that were influencing this? Uh, our best bet is that it had to do with hormones and uh, likely had to do with kind of growth factors and other kinds of metabolic hormones that seem to be at times different for sons and daughters. And that when a mom is lactating for two daughters, she makes you know, growth-maximizing daughter milk. And when she's lactating for two sons, she makes son growth maximizing milk. And that when she has a son and a daughter, that there's something intermediate between those two optimizations. And so those daughters and sons end up being a bit shorter, a small amount, but a measurable amount. And that that doesn't, that, and the thing that's really cool is that this isn't shaped by prenatal effects because there was no difference in the formula bed. So it's very specific to breast milk. We do have time for a couple more. Kira, we, I've been, we've been monopolizing it though. Are you burning to ask a question or shall we save your... No, I think the students should get an opportunity to do it. This is a, a unique opportunity for them to have Katie one-on-one, -on -one, so... Right on, fair enough. Okay, gonna Alex right now. I'm gonna go ahead and just have you all ask your questions. You might as well just, <laughs> just, just do it. Hey Katie, I'm Alex. My question for you today is, Breast milk is really important and it's very vital to infants. Is there a way that w women protect like, their mammary glands so that disease doesn't get bypassed through to the children through uh, breast milk? That is a really interesting question. And there's a lot of debate about this. 
because near as we can tell, research was done by a team in Australia a few years ago showing that when babies were sick, after they became sick, mothers upregulated their immune factors within the breast milk. The question was, okay, is it that they are increasing the immune factors in breast milk to protect the baby? Is it that they are increasing immunofactors locally within the mammary gland to protect it from salivary backwash from the negative pressure during suckling that comes from the baby? So is it, are they there to protect the mammary? Or is it that the mother has an undetectable infection from exposure to her baby's illness and she's upregulating her immune function for herself and as a byproduct, it gets into the milk? Or could it be all three or two? And the answer is we don't have the research to show that. What we do know is that breastfeeding is protective toward the mammary gland. So for centuries, breast cancer was known as nun's disease because the women who were at risk for developing breast cancer were women who did not lactate, which would be nuns because other people were under you know, natural fertility. And that what you have is different kinds of environmental toxins are, tend to be lipophilic. They, they build up in your fat tissue. They end up getting stored within the glandular tissue of the mammary gland. And if you never lactate, then you never mobilize those fats and you never get rid of all of those pollutants that are in your mammary gland, which of course I think would make the next question be like, wait, so does a newborn baby get a huge endowment of the accumulated pollutants in the mother's mammary tissue? And the answer is yes. But everything we know about breast milk suggests that the protective benefits of breast milk far outweigh that exposure that then passes through the baby because the babies end up burning their fat as they grow. So they don't end up having that accumulation. And so so that's, that's one area where we've looked at, as a field, have looked at how um, near as we can tell breastfeeding can be very protective. When mothers have mastitis or other kinds of local infections within the mammary gland, the recommendation is to continue milk flow through the mammary gland to help clear that infection as milk synthesis, as the mammary gland is, is emptied, it upregulates milk synthesis, and that's gonna pull more water from the mother's circulating blood and that's going to deliver more immune factors into the mammary gland as well as the ones that are targeting it specifically. And so keeping milk flowing through the mammary gland can be quite important for protecting the mammary gland. Good question. Hi, I'm, yeah, I'm Danielle. I'm with Evolutionary Studies Club. We have a question that was kind of pulled from last night. And we have, what do you think about in inducing changes in breast milk? Yeah, great question. Um, so one of the things is that the mammary gland, in order to uh, functionally develop, to be able to be good at synthesizing milk, it really relies on hormones that signal from the placenta, possibly the fetus, from across pregnancy. And you actually see functional development of mammary occur before conception, just in case there's a conception. If there isn't a conception, then the functional development of the mammary stops and it hormonal activity in there. So, so what you find is that when a baby is born prematurely, you've really interrupted that functional development of the mammary gland. And so the milk composition can have a number of differences. You also have an incredibly challenging experience. If you have a preterm baby, moms experience a huge psychological stressor. They might have had a traumatic birth experience. They're definitely having a baby that's receiving significant clinical care, depending on the age and gestational weeks. And so the combination of incomplete functional development of the mammary gland, along with the challenges of the particular health situation, 
can cause a lot of psychological challenge that interferes with breastfeeding or milk production and milk letdown. And so, so one of the things that happens in these cases is clinicians are working really hard to try and help the mother get her milk production up. They work with her in terms of like pumping because oftentimes the baby can't feed at the breast. It's too little. And so managing her condition as well as the baby simultaneously because the hope is is that by stimulating milk synthesis, pumping and doing these things, at the time that the baby's ready for discharge from the hospital or later on in its care, moms are able to provide some, if not all, of the nutrition and, and, and milk for the baby. I think that there's um, more attention right now because moms of preterm infants have um, difficulty with lactating. It generally needs to be supplemented. And so there's a big, big set of studies that are happening, clinical trials at hospitals and, and with animal model systems, trying to understand how do we provide complementary supplemental donor milk effectively? Do we target a particular uh, phenotype of milk for donor milk? Is there, is there like a type O donor milk that is good for everybody? Is there a way to do donor matching? Is there a way to do uh, pooling donor milks in a really beneficial way to optimize the glycan delivery and stuff like that? What's the appropriate safety, right? So like we know that colonizing the gut with good microbes is really important. How do we get those microbes into the baby safely, right? Because we know we need to colonize them with something. Otherwise, they're going to colonize with what's running around the hospital, which can be dangerous. But not pasteurizing donor milk, well, that poses dangers too. And so you have a really complex situation and, and people, multiple researchers are working in all of these uh, parts of the puzzle. Great question. Hi, my name is Lindsay. Um, my question is a little bit more general. Do you have any reservations about studying human behavior, behavior using primates? I more have reservations about studying lactation biology dynamics in humans. So when I started out, I was really interested in human. What does human breast milk look like? How does it influence infant development? And it quickly became clear like, oh man, this is going to be really hard. Diet matters. E local ecology matters. Cultural practices matter, right? Like so much, depending on your culture, your mother-in-law may exert strong influences how you do things. And we have uh, artificial breast milk in the form of formula that is used to more or less extents in different, in different communities and different demographics. And I realized that as a PhD student, there was no way I could, I could tackle all the variable parameters and was like, all right, let's step back. I want to understand how mother's milk varies as a function of maternal condition in a socially complex mammal and how that shapes aspects of infant development. And so I turned to a monkey model system because it, didn't have a whole bunch of cultural things complicating my study. At the time that I began my research, there was one, there were two studies in non-human primates talking about inter-individual variation in milk synthesis, one from the 80s and one um, published in 2001. Baboons and cow trickets, that was all that was known about individual differences in, in primate milk. The human work was done in public health fields, which is great, but it's atheoretical. It isn't influenced by an evolutionary perspective at all. And so they're not thinking about parent-offspring conflict. They're not thinking about trade-offs between the body's development and behavioral activity. Nobody was looking at like sex differences or, or effects of parity and where a female's at in her reproductive career as a function of life history trade-offs. And so when I started, it was like, we needed to lay down a lot of like, basic foundational, like basic questions 
And by working with non-human primates in a very controlled setting, I was able to start tackling those things. As I developed that knowledge, I was able to then scaffold more sophisticated questions and start doing more targeted work in humans, knowing what we did and, and didn't have to control for as much as we moved into, into the human lactation area. I just want to interject because for my other class where we're reading about Katie's work, she sent me a recommended video to show them, and it was the delivery part two from the television show, The Office. And I highly recommend it. We'll include it in our notes. Um, you may have to go onto Netflix or Hulu to watch it. But when she said parent uh, offspring conflict, it reminded me, one, how much that clip resonated with my experience. I have triplets, for those of you who haven't been tuning in, and we had a lot of that stress about one baby's latching, the other baby's not, but the parent-offspring conflict was so literally embodied with the three boys fighting over two boobs yeah. at the same time. They were pushing each other off the boobs. My wife was yelling at them, and what we Ultimately, our, our, this is my, I shared one of my mottos earlier, which is why, why fill your plate if you can overfill your plate. So the triplets to grad school is part of that. But the other one was whatever keeps mommy sane. So uh, part of that involved trade-offs. And, and that's the essence of parent-offspring conflict is managing those trade-offs. So I, you were right. There was a lot to unpack there. I really yeah. appreciated that. Yeah. No, I, I love that episode because it has it has lactation consultants and, and paternal perspectives and maternal perspectives and baby perspectives. It was great. So you bring that up about triplets. So do you guys know that hyenas are, are born with teeth? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, you know why they're born with teeth? The mother's condition is marginal and she cannot sustain all of the offspring. The biggest, strongest, and most aggressive will attack its siblings and keep them from getting access to milk. So they're born with teeth and in the hyena den, the mom puts them at, at two different ends of the den and builds like a hill in between them. And so they stay away from each other inside the den and they come out and she lays down outside it for them to come suckle. And if there's not enough to go around, the better condition offspring will, will basically keep the other one away. So they'll have a competitive inhibitor. Whoa lead to suicide at times. My name is Sarah. My question actually follows that you answered a little bit on just now, but it was on how, where you see like the advantages and some of the limitations when it comes to your studies in relation to public health. Yeah, so that's a great question. And for those of you that have been taking statistics, have you guys encountered George Box yet and his famous statistical quote? So he says that in statistics, all models are wrong. Some are useful. <laughs> and I, you know, this is how I generally feel about milk studies, right? When I look at milk for my lab assays, it's milk I've collected from the mom. It's not what the baby suckled. It's not, you know, am I as good at milking a monkey as a, as a baby is at suckling? No, of course not, right? So I think that what it behooves us is to understand the ways in which we conduct our studies, how do those influence the, the data we get, and to think you know, real carefully about what our interpretations mean. So um, a lot of times it's really hard to get information about volume. And so you're only looking at concentrations in milk, but you don't necessarily know volume. So is it that something's low in milk 
or that you're looking at a, a dilution effect, right? And, you know, how, like, there, you know, there are great things about rhesus macaque monkeys in that they are socially complex. They grow up in dynamic groups of close kin, distant kin, and non-kin. They have a substantial amount of neurodevelopment after they're born. They uh, have a number of analogous genes that underlie behavioral tendencies to humans, um, more so in some ways than some chimpanzees. It, not some chimpanzees, chimpanzees as a species. And so in that sense, it lets us access certain things that we can't ethically do in humans. There's no one model, there's no one study, there's no one approach in any of these that give us comprehensive answers. We have to keep triangulating them using a diversity of methods, a diversity of studies. And it may not be that we do that individually ourselves in our lab, but to recognize that the work we do is always going to be complementary to other people's work and that it's through everybody conducting science in these areas that we gain greater understandings in a way that we can use to meaningfully apply to clinical practice or public policy. Sweet. So do you guys ever face criticism from like the other fields, how just from public health or like more clinical professionals or researchers? Not many people tell me to my face. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think it's more that it's the onus is on me to explain why people should care about money, monkey studies. I don't. Sometimes I do, but sometimes most people are pretty on board with it. Um, a lot of people understand the value of model systems. A lot of people want to see uh, information that's consistent from humans, or they want to see clinical trials. They want to see proof of concept. Yes, yes to all of that. We, of course, want to have really good information before we start translating it into clinical practice. The other hand of that, though, is also looking at what's the standard of care in clinical practice, right? So if the standard of care, of care is randomly selecting milk donors, do we anticipate there to be any negative consequence of time matching or age matching or parity matching? Like, are we expecting an intervention to have any potential negative consequence or is it expected to have either the same effect as standard of care or um, shift the effect size in a beneficial way? And so like, it's also thinking about what are the applications? What's the current practice? Does, is there anything to suggest that there'd be any negative consequence? Good question. This has been awesome, but it is all we have time for. Kara, do you want to take us out? Yeah. So first, thank you so much, Katie, for taking the time to chat with us today. And thank you for coming and chatting with me before you go to Finland. Yeah, thanks. And then thank you all to the grad students for having really wonderful, thoughtful questions. I think this was a really great, unique way to do this podcast this time. So thank you all so much. Well, I have been Kara, and you can find me on Twitter at Kara Akabak. Can we find you anywhere, Katie, online? I am also on Twitter at <laughs> underscore suck. And uh, I've been Chris. You can find me at Chris underscore L-Y. We are the Sausage of Science for the Human Biology Association. And thank you, Katie, for joining us. And thanks, everyone, for listening. All right, bye, everyone.